0: Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. I'm going to read just briefly from the book of Hosea, chapter 1. This will provide us with a little bit of context for the sermon, which this morning is coming from Acts, chapter 25. Sorry, 20, yeah, 5, okay. (laughs) Acts, chapter 25. That will be our sermon text in a moment, but first let's read from Hosea, chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. It's the first of the minor prophets. comes right after the book of Daniel. Hosea chapter 1. I'm going to read here the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And then God said to him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away, and I will have mercy on the house of Judah.' will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Amin, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in that day, where it is said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. One verse from chapter 2. Say to your brethren, My people, and to your sisters, Mercy is shown. Amen. Hosea has one of those callings none of us wants. He is preaching judgment, that is final judgment, to the northern kingdom of Israel. He is not offering them salvation. He is warning warning them that their kingdom will come to an end and there is no future for them. Secondly, he is to live out that message of doom in his own marriage. He is called, in the most extraordinary manner, to marry a woman who is of the same class as the nation of Israel. She is unfaithful. She is an unbeliever, a worshiper of false gods. And to make the message of Hosea plain to the kingdom of Israel, they bear three children... So that all the northern kingdom should know, when you worship false gods, when you live in union with false gods, these are the offspring that you will bear. Judgment, exile, and death. Jezreel, you will be judged. Lo-Ruhamah, you will not be loved. Lo-Ami, you will not be my people. And yet, in the most extraordinary fashion, as Hosea does so beautifully throughout the book, I commend it to you. You should read it, the whole book. He ends this message of woe and despair and doom with the words of the Abrahamic promise. Yet, judgment, exile, and death will not thwart the promises of God from coming true. Israel will cease to exist and be more numerous than all the sand of the seashore. The kingdom will fall, and yet they will gather together under the great king in Jerusalem in verse 11. And so Hosea has this mission. Say to those who are doomed to die, you are my people, and I will show you mercy. Dear friends, how can this be? How can a condemned kingdom be the recipients of a gospel of grace? Because the day of judgment, death, and exile has come. And it was called Calvary. Christ suffered the judgment, the death, and the exile our sins deserved, And so we are no longer the people of condemnation. We are now the people of mercy. With this in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 25. I'll be reading the second half of the chapter, Acts chapter 25, verses 13 through 27. Acts chapter 25, verses 13 through 27. We haven't been trafficking in the book of Acts much lately, so just briefly by review, D- uh, David, <laughs> see how long we haven't been there? <laughs> Paul has been in house arrest in Caesarea, down by the coast, for two years. He's been watching the ships sail to Rome, longing to be on one of them, and he has not been able to make it. And so, we come here to sort of the end of the process, the legal process that has held Paul prisoner. Acts chapter 25, verses 13 through 27. Here again, the word of the Lord. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction, before the accused meets the accusers face to face, and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusations against him of such things as I supposed." but had some questions against him about their own religion and a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until... I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, And all the men who are here present with us, you see this man, about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. for it seems to me unreasonable to send a, excuse me, to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Amen. And amen. In what turned out to be my last wrestling match, I had just taken down my opponent. It was the quarterfinals of the tournament. I was wrestling well. I got two points for the takedown. I remember him surging upward very violently, and I remember his closely cut curly black hair getting very large in my view. I remember thinking, wow, his head's really close. And the next thing I remember, I was sitting next to the wall at the far end of the gymnasium while my coach's toddler daughter was sort of staring at my vacant eyes, curiously. I'm told that the top of his head struck my nose with such force that I went over backward, landed seated, and blood poured from my nose. I'm told that the coach and the ref rushed to my side. The ref looked into my vacant, far-off stare and said, What is your name? I nodded slowly and said, yes. (laughs) At that point, my wrestling match and career was over. It's a funny question. What is your name? It's the obvious question. It's the unforgettable answer. We ask it of people in such situations because we suppose it's the one unforgettable fact. And yet I am struck time and time again in counseling, in shepherding, in preaching, in my own personal experience with my own faith. We suffer continually from spiritual concussions. And we are so often mired in sin and in sorrow in such a way that we cannot answer the question, what is your name? Who are you, beloved? Who are you? Do you know when you face temptation? Do you know when you fall headlong into sin? When the heart breaks and the tears fall, do you know who you are? We have a little text before us, a short story in the middle of a big story. And I have taken just this tiny chunk of seemingly irrelevant legal details Because it communicates to us through the power of the Holy Spirit the reality of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, the good news for us, the exciting, thrilling, world changing news for us is that Jesus is alive. And that that fact gives us identity, interest, and purpose. Who are you? You are the ones who believe Jesus is alive. Who will live and indeed die like Jesus is alive. Is this true? Is this who you are? My dear friends, Jesus is alive. Know who you are. Now this story that comes to us this morning has two parts. Act 1 and Act 2. In Act 1, Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea and greet In Act 2, Agrippa and Bernice come into the auditorium to hear from Paul. These two parallel events, the coming of Agrippa and Bernice, clue us in that the Hebrew writer Luke is using that ancient Hebrew practice of parallelism. That Agrippa and Bernice's coming is signaling to us these two acts. In Act 1, we have Festus giving a speech in which he explains his problem with Paul. In Act 2, we have Festus giving a speech in which he explains the problem he has with Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, I don't find Festus to be that important of a figure. And yet, Luke considers these little speeches of Festus so important he records them twice. And so let us look at them. In verse 13, Festus's first speech is occasioned by the coming of Agrippa in Bernice. Agrippa is called here a king. But those of you who know a little bit about your ancient history know that it is the age of the Roman Empire. There are no kings. This title king is a ceremonial one. He is an Edomian, a descendant of Edom, that is, of Esau, He has been granted this royal title by the Roman Empire in order to have a bit of peace. But it's a largely ceremonial function. He has a small army, a bit of personal guards. He has a queen, Bernice. But mostly he's just a wealthy, overweight dude who likes to enjoy the good life. He doesn't have a lot of work or responsibility. But one of his official duties is to greet the brand new Roman governor, Festus. Festus has just come to town. He is taking up his new responsibility and his job is the exact opposite of Agrippa's. It comes with no wealth, it comes with no privilege, and it comes with all the work of actually running the area. King Agrippa is the ceremonial office, something a little akin to the mayor of Cambridge. Someone who gets to run for office, gets to get votes, gets to have his or her name everywhere, but doesn't actually do any of the work. Festus is the Roman governor, a little more like the city manager. You know, the one that none of you know his name. You didn't even know he wasn't he. And he's been doing all the work of actually making sure the city runs. That's what's going on here. What else is going on here is that the Roman official who actually runs this area is receiving into his house the Edomite. Edomite. The Idumean. these two are not friends of the Jews. You see, the world in which Paul finds himself is a swirling vortex of conflicting identities. The Edomites are struggling as an ancient people on the edge of extinction. This is a king who has no kingdom. The Roman Empire, by contrast, Is struggling with all the powers and pressures of world dominance, especially this little troublesome piece in the edge of the Mediterranean where the Jewish people just won't follow orders. The Jewish people, in the meantime, are struggling to retain their sense of specialness, their religious dignity. Surely all of this rings a bell for us. We live in an age of conflicting identities. We live in an age where our world has begun to teach and we have begun to believe that identity is found within, that identity is primarily how I feel about myself, and my sense of significance is how I define myself. The problem with this is it generates 350 different versions of, 350 million different versions of Americans. This level of individualism, in which my identity is only internal, only emotional and psychological, is that I cannot be known by anyone else. And I cannot be subject to anyone else's influence. And the Jews and the Romans and the Edomites all hang out together in Jerusalem and Judea, and they refuse to accept influence from one another. And there are these conflicting, indeed warring, identities And it is interesting that it is out of this pool, this churning cauldron, that a new identity emerges. Christianity. And as Christianity bubbles up out of this seething first century pot, it is the one that endures. How many of you have friends who are citizens of the Roman Empire? How many of you have friends who worship regularly in Jerusalem offering sacrifices under the Levitical priests? How many of you have ever met anyone in the history of the world who introduces themselves as an Edomite or an Idumean? These three lines, as they were constructed in verse 13, are extinct. The only identity that remains is Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. Do you know who you are? My friends, if you put your identity in what you think you are of yourself, that identity will fall and fail. If you put your identity in this nation, if you put this, your identity in this region of the nation, if you put your identity in your work, in your children, in your marriage, that identity will fail. There is only one identity that endures, and that is Christ. Those who are united to Christ. But there is not only conflicting identities in this day. In verses 14 and 15 and 16, Festus begins his speech to explain the problem he has with the Apostle Paul, showing that there was also an age of conflicting interests. You see, Festus had gone up to Jerusalem, and there he was met, he says here, by the chief priests and the elders of the, of the Jewish people. That is, those who were in power, they, with their weight of authority, their sense of significance, had evaluated the welfare of their community. And they had decided there was something necessary for the peace and welfare of their community. The Jewish people would prosper, and the peace of their society depended upon the death of Paul. He was of such trouble that he had to go. But it is interesting that the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the elders, would then appeal to the Roman authority to execute their will. Though they are the ones with the power to decide what is right and good for the Jewish people... They can't fulfill the death sentence. Instead, they bring it to Festus and say, you must condemn him. You must destroy him, to use Festus's word. Why is this? Because they haven't the right to execute. They are under Roman authority. But what is more, the Apostle Paul is a Roman citizen with Roman rights. And this is what Festus asserts in verse 16. I told them that it was not the custom of Romans to condemn and destroy a man who has not had proper trial before the tribunal, who has not heard from his accusers face to face and has not had opportunity to answer them. He lists three sacred rights of individual Romans. And we see the conflicting interests. There is one group in authority, the chief priests and elders, who claim this is what is best for our community. Paul must die. But there is a second authority, the Roman governor, who responds and says, but he has rights as an individual Roman. These interests are on collision course. Who should win and why? Must we seek the good of the community? Or must we preserve the rights of the individual? Hopefully these words ring a bell for you too. Does this not sound familiar? These are ageless struggles in the human experience. We have conflicting identities. How do we get Romans and Jews and Idumeans to play nice? We have conflicting interests. How do we preserve the welfare of our community and the rights of the individuals thereof? I remember sitting in Political Science 352 at Geneva College taught by Frederick J. Nyker. All the Geneva grads are nodding, yes. And he opened one of his lectures with, when can a Christian biblically defy and disobey the government? And he gave us a series of options. When the government is so wickedly immoral that they're just not even worth honoring. When the, when the law requires you to sin. Whenever you want to. And of course, as good little Christians not having any idea where he was going, we disavowed the third. No, you can't just disobey whenever you want to. You have to have a good, legitimate, moral reason. And then he sprung his trap. How many of you would like me to follow you home on the highway this afternoon? You see, when it comes to the speed limit, most of us disobey the civil magistrate whenever we feel like it. You see, we have this ageless question, this ageless challenge. My interests, our interests. Who should win? Why should they win? Not surprisingly, my friends, if you have heard me preach at any length, you will know what my answer is Jesus should win. There is an interest in an identity that should run deeper than the questions of human community and human identity. This is the problem that Festus is having as a governor. He's too superficial. He looks at this world and sees these questions, but he has not the answer. He says it is not the custom, but by this word he means the legal obligation of Romans. And so he has them on collision course, and he does not know how to resolve it. It becomes explicit in the following verses where He brings them together in Caesarea. And without delay, on the very next day, he's eager to handle this case. He assumes his judgment seat, commands the man to be brought in, the accusers stand up, and guess what the problem is? It's not the welfare of the Jewish community. It's not the rights of an individual Roman. Those were both red herrings. You know what the real fight is over? You know what the real conflict is over? They brought some questions against him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Can you imagine Festus coming to this conclusion? This is a Roman officer, trained in Roman law, commander of Roman legions, sitting in the seat of authority to pass judgment on this nefarious brigand. And then he learns the charge. He thinks the dead Jesus is still living. And Festus goes, come again? This is the issue? My friends, it is. It is the real issue. You see, Festus rightly perceives that the question on which human history stands and falls, in which civilizations rise or collapse, is the question, is Jesus alive? The resurrection is the fulcrum of human history. It is the significance of our existence. Did Jesus get crucified for sin? And did Jesus rise again for our righteousness? That is the issue for which we should be tried. That is the issue for which we should be known. That is the issue for which we should debate and fight. When we look at the conflicting identities in this world, we should say, I choose other. I choose Christ. When we look at the conflicting interests of this world, we should say, I choose Christ. Indeed, I want to be known as one who believes Christ is alive and well. So I am not afraid. Is this what is working in our hearts, dear friends? That we look to a living Christ and say, I am not afraid. Do we look to a living Christ and say, let death come. I know the resurrection. Do we look to a living Christ and say, I am not afraid. Let challenges and sufferings and sorrows come. I am not afraid. I have a resurrected Christ. There is a centeredness that I so seldom feel. That can be possessed by a believer. Who knows who he or she is. That Christ is alive and I am alive in him forever. This is the real identity. This is the real interest. A believer in the risen Christ. You see, when the Jews and the Edomians and the Romans get together and go to war over the soul of Paul, they find he is not on their ethnic map. He's not a Jew. He's not a Roman. He's not an Edomian. He's a Christian. And he doesn't fit on their spectrum. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be wonderful? To have the world look at this church and say... Y'all aren't from around here, are you? You don't fit. You are other. You are rooted in a resurrected, eternal, heavenly reality that transcends the petty squabbles that define the rise and fall of human history. Because let me tell you, friends, the warfare between kingdoms of this world are petty next to the eternal kingdom of God. This is true treasure. To seek first the kingdom of God. To find that we affirm together this truth. Jesus is alive. This is the heart of the issue. Is Jesus alive? Festus is uncertain. And many of us indeed may be uncertain. Is Jesus alive? And so uncertain about these matters, he gives Paul an option. I'm ill equipped, Paul, says Festus, to judge whether Jesus is alive or dead, or if that fact matters to anyone anywhere. So, Paul, how about you go up to Jerusalem and be judged by the experts? Those who know the Jewish council. But Paul instead appeals to an alternative authority. He says, No, no, don't send me to Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin. Send me to Rome and to Caesar. Realizing that the avenue of appeal is available to him, Paul throws his lot in with the Romans, distancing himself from the Jews in order to achieve something else. Something we may have forgotten in the long gap between the last sermon and this one. Paul has a mission. Agrippa says to Festus, upon hearing this story, I would like to hear the man myself. Festus says, tomorrow you shall hear him. So in verse 23, the story resets. We go back to the same experience we had in verse 13. Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with commanders and prominent men of the city. But this time, the coming of Agrippa and Bernice was not connected to that swirling, conflicting identity, Idumean, Jewish, and Roman. No, this time, it comes to the great interest of the first century in what we would call today entertainment. This is supposed to be a trial. This is supposed to be a legal hearing. Notice how it goes down. In comes the king and the queen with great pomp. It's a parade. Notice where they meet. Not at the seat of the tribunal in the, in the uh, Roman court. They meet in the auditorium. You know, the theater. With the big stage and the mood lighting and the curtains. This is a play. This is a drama. This is a parade. And in come behind the king, the commanders, and in behind them, the prominent men of the city. This is for entertaining purposes. They are putting Paul on display in part to handle a trial, but in part to have a good time. And let me tell you, if there's anything we love in America more than slamming our identities and loyalties into each other, it's making social media fun out of it. Isn't it startling how easy it is in electronic communication to take my identity and to slam it on top of someone else's, forgetting there's a real human being who has those feelings and thoughts somewhere out there? Isn't it easy to be entertained by the conflict that is killing our country? We make tweets and we make posts, we make videos. And we laugh at the struggles that are tearing at the soul of a nation. Agrippa and Bernice come in in the same way. A man's life is on trial. They want him dead. For two years he's been unjustly held in house arrest. And what do they do? They put on a parade. Let us have fun. Let us laugh. Let us play. Let us not take significantly the welfare of this apostle. And the story resets. The identities are on display. The conflict is on display. Here comes the great pomp, the great performance. And Festus rises up to give again a second time this speech. Here is my problem with the Apostle Paul. Agrippa and all of you who are present, here's the man. Out comes Paul. Last of all, the train, the crowning moment of this parade into the assembly. Where the Jews had petitioned him, once in Jerusalem, once in Caesarea, crying out loudly and violently, he is not fit to live. Festus confesses, this is my problem. The Jewish identity, the Jewish interest says Paul should die. But, verse 25, I have found he committed nothing deserving of death. And he appealed to Caesar, so I decided to send him. My other problem is, is that he's a Roman. He's under my protection and jurisdiction and he has appealed to Caesar and the law says I have to send him to Caesar. His individual Roman rights hold up. And so he has no choice but to send him. This is Festus's problem. How does he resolve the conflicting identities and the conflicting interests of this world? He has to throw his loyalty in with the Romans. He's a Roman. So the Romans win. He will go to Caesar. But he has a second problem. If he sends him to Caesar and the Roman identity, the Roman interest triumphs over the Jewish one, what does he write to Caesar? I mean, put yourself again in his sandals. He's a Roman, trained in law and military. What is he going to write? How is he going to explain what this guy is doing in Rome? What, what legal precedent is there? What law code could he appeal to? I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out in the hopes that this grand assembly could entertain themselves by bringing together a plausible explanation of what is happening here now. Can anyone explain this can anyone give just cause and explanation for his appeal to Caesar and the charges that are against him? What then should we do? Or in the words of the prominent 20th century theologian, how now shall we live? My friends, do we know the answer? It's a stunning contrast to what Festus says. Therefore I brought you out that after an examination I may have something to write verse 27. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner not to specify the charges against him. It's unreasonable that Paul should go to Rome. It's unreasonable that he should go with with such pathetic charges against him. It's unreasonable that he should be in house arrest in Caesarea for two years. It's unreasonable that Paul should suffer all these things. And have to appeal to Rome to make it right. This is entirely unreasonable from the eyes of Festus. What does Festus not see? Turn back two pages. Acts chapter 23 verse 11. Acts chapter 23 verse 11. But the following night the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness to me in Rome. Do you know why the Roman Empire can't keep Paul there? Because Jesus wants him in Rome. Because Jesus is alive. He has been risen from the dead and all the Romans put together are but pawns in his palm. Jesus is the king. The king of kings. The high king of all. My friends, we are easily drowning in a sea of conflicting identities. And we need to remember one identity. Jesus is alive. He is king. We are drowning in a sea of conflicting interests. And we need but one interest. The mission of King Christ. What would he have us do? What would he have us preach? How would he have us love? Dear friends, so many days I don't even know who I am. So many days I get confused. So many days I forget. How about you? So many days we wander in this world. And I get all this flood of information and pressure and emotion from out and within. And I lose track of who I am and what story I'm living in. And along comes this little text. Along comes this confused and frightened little Roman And unbeknownst to him, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he hits the nail on the head. Jesus is alive. It's his story. It's his world. They're his kingdoms. We're his people. Do you know who you are? When it all goes wrong, do you know who you are? Do you know what your real interest is in this life? My friends, Jesus is alive. Know who you are. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day you have made. We give you thanks that you have called forth Christ. That He should walk this earth in our flesh and in our blood. That He, sinless, should die for us sinners. That He should perish in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. That He, the everlasting Lord of glory, should lay in our grave and triumph over our death. We give you thanks that he is alive. And that he rules and reigns in heaven forever. And we give you thanks that this is the undoing of all that has fallen. That this is the reversing of all that has been cursed. The turning back of all that is corrupt. And that we in him have now an everlasting life. To which we look and in which we hope. Father, we pray that you would imprint this truth on our hearts and in our minds. That we would fulfill the command of the Apostle and consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God. That we would know that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that we, Father, would live with heads focused on Christ hearts enlarged with the love of Christ and hands dedicated to the service of Christ. Our Father, we give you thanks that our Jesus is alive and pray that you would grant us grace that throughout our days this week, we would make much of him. For these things we ask in his name. Amen.